Now she is, Captain. Isn't she a beauty? Yes, she is, Mr. Scott. Is she ready to go? Aisa. She's ready to go to the stars. This is the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. It's mission to seek out new ideas, find new games, and to boldly bring the awesome to your game. Mr. Scott, Warp 9. I Captain. And now, our host. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Trav. This is Pixie. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast. Your podcast, a spinning out of control, somewhere in the depths of space, and realizing that your ship is actually a loner. <laughs> Mr. Scott, what's wrong with the ship? I don't know, Captain, but I'm trying to reverse the polarity right now. All the instructions came in a PDF, somewhere packed away. <laughs> I left the owner's manual in my other pants. Yeah. yeah oh, gosh. <laughs> instructions are translated from some Wallis. It's designed for things who have eight arms. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast. This week we are talking about starships. We've been spending a little bit of time talking about our FTL 2448 game, which was uh, one of the early games produced by TriTech Games. If you want to check out something really cool, you need to tune in to the TriTac Podcast. What's that you say? TriTac? What's a TriTac? TriTac is one of the oldest role-playing companies around. They make games like... Fringewood. FTL 2448. Hardwired Hinterland. Beach Bunny Bimbos with Blasters. Designed for D20 and Savage Worlds, these games will kick your dice into overdrive. Whether you want to combat the denizens of the underworld, travel the galaxy, get crazy with bimbos, or travel the multiverse and do it all, TriTac has you covered. Go to TriTacGamers.com to see what it's all about. That's T-R-I-T-A-C Gamers.com. And check out our weekly podcast at TriTacSystems.Podbean.com. Or simply enter keyword TriTac in iTunes. You're gonna love it. Moving on to biotech vessels. In game, the were worships. All worships are living creatures. Right. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh huh. Probably also something whatever a uh, not a, a Krelvin would make would probably be a biotech ship. Yeah, unless you just got a giggle out of making it out of solid diamond or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, according to this, they actually use sun sails. They actually don't even bother with fusion drives. They just simply, they're, they're immortal. What the hey, they're just going to fly around. We don't worry about going anyplace fast. <laughs> uh, they're, willing, they're willing to take 100 years to get to another star system. Yeah. and they, they, I remember reading that. I was like going, wait a second. That's a different point of view than humans have, that's for sure. Well, they do yeah. have phase drive zero. Phase drive zero is... N. One hour. They basically, they, they'll sail out to the, the point where, and they can jump from 
anywhere. So this is their, oh, okay. I thought for a second you were going to say this is their in-system drive is to use a solar sail. Yeah, they use solar sails as the cruise around system because they basically don't, they can jump from anywhere in-system, okay. you know. Oh, oh okay. Sense. Yeah. So they don't need to go fast. It looks pretty, you know. I love the, love the paint job I did in the mirror. Right. <laughs> So, but, you know, biotech vessels, uh, you know, the, the, usually the fun ones are the ones where the vessel itself is intelligent. And so you get to have these interactions with an alien intelligence. Uh, uh, Moya on Farscape is a, is a very yeah. good example of that. Uh, they, uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other examples. Uh, the one that comes to my mind is, is from the novel God Whale, which wasn't a starship. It was actually like a submarine where they literally built a uh, uh, crew accommodations inside of a giant whale. And, but the whale was intelligent, so you could talk to the whale, but you were actually you, you, you lived inside of its body. But I think, anyway. there, was a, I think there was another uh, biotech vessel, and it's been ages since I've read this story. It was called Mother by Philip Jose Farmer and basically this guy melded with this space faring blob like thing and just yeah that would probably be another good example of a biotech vessel because he just got to travel around in space fused inside this blob and the blob had some type of companion with it at all times and yeah that would be another example as I said, it's been ages since I've read the story. Like we're talking like twenty five years now. Yeah, and good. I was just if you're looking for another one, there is uh, from Britain the Lex. Oh yes, the Lex. That was that was good. That's a great that's a great example. Yeah, it's basically uh, a giant bioengineered bio dragonfly. But it's all. But it's what it really is is a gigantic weapon. Yes. Oh yeah. It just happens to be used. As the personal um, you, you, you fly ship of, <laughs> of of one guy who happened to have the uh, the, the bio, bio key for it. So uh, also uh, on Babel, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, on Babylon Five, um, all of the um, uh, there were a whole lot of of alien biotech vessels there as well. Oh yes, the the um, cautious race. Where was cautious race? The, I can't remember the name of the Kasha, of Kasha's race, but his ship, their ships were alive. The Vorlons. The Vorlons. The Vorlon ships. The Vorlon ships are alive, and so and so are the shadow ships. Yes. Oh, that's right. Yeah. But the shadow ships, they they were kind of like insane, right? Well, they required a a, a human psionic to operate. I know, but they they didn't actually. Was there actually any direct feedback between the? You know, was there any kind of synth? The reason why they were insane because the human inside became insane being hooked up to it. <laughs> okay, right. And if you like Anne McCaffrey, uh, she did a whole series on ships that were metal, but all the controls and everything that operated inside the ship were all operated by a human that was in a suspension tank somewhere in the ship. Uh, actually, I think the ship that sang it actually was one of the brain in the brain in the sh- brain in the jar ships, much like no, uh, mm, no, it wasn't. It she wasn't? she actually had a body. Ah. There just wasn't much of one. Okay, then I'm thinking of from Larry Niven. Um, 
uh, I forgot the name. They did three or four uh, in-system stories, but yeah, one of the one of the guys lost his basically had a massive accident, and they saved him by basically turning him into a brain in a jar, and he basically his module could be hooked up to other ships, and he could basically fly ships. Right, and uh, the uh, book Mayflies uh, was a colony ship that was supposed that I don't think it was supposed to be intergenerational, uh, but it turned out that it was. Uh, and he was a, uh, a brain in a jar, basically, supposedly controlling the entire ship. But what happened was that he woke up. And he wasn't actually dead. <laughs> I mean, they thought he was brain dead, you know, and so they took his brain and were using this, but he actually woke up. And that kind of caused a lot of problems uh, on get, getting, because as soon as he woke up, hi, uh, he uh, didn't actually... Uh, know what he was doing so he kind of shut everything down accidentally yeah and in game but unfortunately you never get well in the development of the game but they actually never made it into the game vesh ships are well vesh just really big couple kilometers long but if you look you saw them, you went that's a vesh <laughs> and if you wanted to run a, a campaign you could actually have a small flotilla of these things where the player characters were actually the ships and then so each and each one would have like things inside them and they would be interacting with their folk and interacting with other vessels in the flotilla going some doing whatever going somewhere or whatever and that would be uh, you you'd be It'd be different. I mean, I, I don't know if anybody's ever done that. I've never even heard of a game where the the, the premise of the game was you're the ships, and uh, the game's all about you going on missions based upon what the crew wants. But it's also you've got to kind of like they got to get you to buy in on it too in some way. Yeah, I think usually with 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 if you have the ship being sentient, whether yeah. it's biotech or hard tech. Usually they're an NPC. Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard of anyone as a player character playing a sentient starship. I just... I think that would be a cool idea, though. You know, I'm, I'm trying to... Yeah. I've considered it, but not not in a bioorganic way, but actually as a, um, uh, as a ship's AI. Though I did run a game for Diaspora where they, the players ran into a ship that's being controlled by, well... The brains of two of two women, and basically they were controlling the ship. And but again, it was an NPC. Uh, but I have actually considered trying to you know trying to run a ship you know play a game where I'm playing the ship's AI, and all the requiring issues that they're around that. It's not bio, but still the same thing of you're dealing with an intelligent ship, not a ship that's basically run by a crew. The ship can run itself just fine by itself. Yeah, there's a, um, and this is a netbook. It was for the old Dragon Star setting by Fantasy Flight Games. A guy online, simply known as Neo, had the, and I'm trying to remember the name. It was a prestige class, but basically, you were a soul mech, which was okay. You died. You used the magic jar spell. You're in the crystal matrix, and they just plug you into an android body. Well, you could later upgrade and plug yourself into a starship, you were the starship. Now, if you wanted to interact with the other player characters, there were these little floating drones, kind of like hover versions of Moya's DRDs, called hands. 
and these hands could interact with the crew and they could go outside of the ship and deal with the rest of the organic crew while you were there, you know, as the ship. So, yeah, that was something that was done, extrapolated on with Dragonstar. But, yeah, if you wanted to, let's say if you wanted to play a Farscape campaign, I suppose, unless you played Pilot, you could play a DRD. Maybe, you know. Or or even better, Red Dwarf and your Holly. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Dave. Yeah. Everyone is dead, dead Dave. Dave. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, uh, though Holly was more definitely... You'll never leave me, Dave, will you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, that's te- that would be a, more of a character who kind of never leaves the ship. Uh, he did yeah. actually, actually, Holly did leave the ship. Uh, in the season they were stuck in Space Bug, Holly was in Space Bug. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think. Oh, I knew Red Dwarf would come up sooner or later. I was hoping to avoid it. Okay. <laughs> well, it's a big, gigantic ship, so yeah. Well, yeah, but still, it's not that I hate Red Dwarf. Like a bad Vindaloo, it'll come up. <laughs> All right, so um, moving along. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So the next one was uh, small-hearted attack craft used to travel between worlds or to assault targets. So uh, these are ones. These are basically ships that are not supposed to be ones that you live on constantly. These are things you get into, you go and do a job. You know, you might it may take a couple of days, but then you come back to your base or something and uh, interact with the people back then. You know, so. Uh, that's why I listed pirate ships because uh, you could have like if you were going out to like go to sorties. We were talking about the capital ships. If you were the people that were uh, the pilots of those hammer, uh, the, those hammerhead uh, attack crafts that they would use against uh, uh, the the aliens. You know, it was all about you know you guys getting into your ships and flying out and and doing the exciting combats against the alien a- enemy ships, or it could be something else. I mean, uh, it, it, if you're playing FTL and you're doing the uh, emergency medical service, those are people that are in small, hardened ships because they go into difficult situations where you know the environment might be very dangerous and they. They go in there, they do a, uh, a rescue mission, they provide immediate aid, and then they turn around and come back. I think, I think when we, if you saw the discussion in there, we were sort of going on the uh, small. When you say small, how small? Football field size? No. That actually is the smallest size ship on, in the game right now, is football field size. <laughs> Well, I'm not limiting myself to what's in FTL, John. Oh, yeah, I understand, yeah. Okay, so um, I, I'm just saying something that, I mean, and the, and, and the size of the ship has a lot to do with the technology that's available, how your technology works. So if it needs to be that size in order for the technology to work, then it needs to be the size of a football field. But most of the time when I think of small uh, crafts, I think about something that is um, – I don't know, let me try to pick something in my mind. Um, something that is maybe 
the size of a, a Coast Guard cruiser that's off the, 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 the goes off the coast. You know, something that may is no more than a hundred feet long. Uh, you know, it might be you know it might be bulbous shaped. I mean, basically um, the uh, Ardana New. I mean, it's a small craft. It's all it's, it's very hardened. Uh, it's not, you know, and it's, it's 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 shaped like a saucer. But I mean, the point is, it has a small crew in it who are usually specialized, you know, in their skills. And usually, you know, in the and the not in the, in the case of our Donna New, it actually doesn't fall into this idea because they they don't just do one specific kind of job, you know. They but they, uh, but most I'm saying. Crafts that would be used for this purpose, I imagine, would be relatively, you know, focused for those things. I think uh, there's a term that would be used for it. I have a oh gosh, and I forget who. I think uh, Philip J. Reed made a bunch of starship maps, and it was called a picket ship, where there were no quarters, there were you know barely a sick bay. It was you took the ship out from the fleet. Did what you had to do and come back. Yeah, picket ship. I think is the name that they used for it. Okay, but what I was going for was that these ships tend to be purpose built. You know, they're not they're yeah. not usually very flexible in what they can. You know, the equipment to send a ship, as you're saying, is there because it's needed for the job that they're going to do. If they wanted to do a different job, they'd have to rip some of that equipment out and put new equipment in, in some way. Yeah. At in game, that's the Nudge B. It's only 114 feet long, has a crew of five, one passenger, and it's used mainly by ICL and medical services. Uh, it's fairly fast. It's one of the faster ships. It can do a, a light year in 24 hours. So, yeah, that pretty much defines what you're saying. It, it, yeah, it's fast in and fast out. Right, and this and this ship would really be, this kind of situation would really benefit from what you were talking about, John, on the uh, on our uh, our page, where if you had a modular ship design, you could take you know you could have many different versions of this ship depending upon what the job is, and they could even transform into each other relatively easily. Why don't you talk some more about that? Well, yeah, modular ship designs, and, and you know, and I remember Bruce asked me a question about you know examples of modular ships in in games or fiction, and it's really hard to find this stuff because a lot of people build well, they design uh, purpose built vessels. Basically, the, every ship you see in most games is built for a specific purpose, but the place you don't see it is in well. NASA. Most NASA designs are, well, we'll use this booster here, and we'll use this thing over here, and that thing over there, and we put it together, and it's that's a modular design. Now, they throw away most of the modules in the process, but still, it's a modular design. Uh, in this case, an FTL, it would be a ship that basically uh, the only thing that stays the same in the ship is the VIN box, the transponder. That's the ship. Everything else is attached to it, because that's what you pay taxes on. Is that VIN ship? Is the VIN box? Everything else is everything else is optional. It's you have a different command. You have a command stack that you attach to it. You put a different propulsion unit on it. Uh, if you're designing it for mining, you put on a, you put in different mining modules on it. If you're going in a, a, as a fast, you know, one of these fast um, ships like the Nudge V, uh, it basically you put on you 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 hook up the the fast uh, phase drive module to it, and you put on you know your uh, small but efficient landing craft to get to a planet if you need to. 
It's 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 a th- it's basically it's your Tinker Toy spaceship. It's your Lego spaceship. Uh, you you might want to put on more armor, you know, uh, a, a, a blade of plating, or you might want to put on a big. Um, it's been, again depending upon your game, uh, a big uh, field generator to provide a lot more defensive shielding. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, or 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 it's basically just a big gun. I mean, basically, you have a spinal mount, massive laser. You know, you, know, you basically you're going someplace where you need to shoot something once, you know, and that's what you design it for. You make it, you turn it into a big gun, and it goes in, it does its one shot, and then hopefully it can come back after that. <laughs> you know, there's various ways you can you can redefine this, redefine a modular ship. Uh, and this is actually one where an AI comes can be handy. The AI can own the VIN box and sells the services as an ace pilot. <laughs> you know, so that it reduces, it, it basically it, it opens up a, a spot in the crew for somebody who isn't a pilot at that point. So you can actually everyone can be not the pilot and not be stuck on the ship and be able to go down and do things on the planet or do things on the wreckage you find. Uh, maybe you're doing a rescue mission, you know, on a world you need to get in there and, and well, you're not rescuing people, you're rescuing information. You're doing the equivalent of grabbing the, um, the spe- the, H- the Hagoni encoding device. So you actually can now start breaking their codes and stuff like that. You try and get one of their encoding devices. So yeah, you're very purpose built at that point. You know, to go in there. But again, it's totally modular and you can update and make changes. And we did ask this before, before about who owns the modules. You may not, not own any of the modules. You may be renting them all and putting them out there, or you may own a couple. You may, may, you may have a cabin you like to live in. And that's the one module you own. The rest you, the rest you rent and use as needed. It's a very versatile design. It's also, uh, be kind of fun. It'd be, be kind of difficult for the GM to juggle what's going on there. So I imagine there'd be, you know, if you're, if it's running into the game, the players would probably pick one or two layouts they like and we would swap, we swap between them as we go along. But, but in terms of game, it means, yeah, you go out there, you look at the thing and say, what the heck is that? It also allows you to play a game where you're stuck in a bunch of wreckage and, you know, it's a sargasso of space to hark back to the previous episode. And all you have out there is modules. So you're going to build yourself a ship from what you can find that works. And and not the last example, but the, the previous examples, this assumes that you have a, a very uh, mature uh, space, uh, shipbuilding kind of uh, culture so that these modules are cheap enough that it's, uh, it's it's cheaper to rent than it is to own, uh, or and also that they are ava- uh, available in large enough quantities that when you go someplace and you say, okay, I'm done with this, there's you can get another module for a, a you know I, for a different purpose because there there's enough sitting around in dry dock waiting for someone to come rent it. You know, there, there's it's like um, car it's like cars. If all you had was ten cars, they'd all be on the road. But because we have millions of cars, there's some of them are in the the rental car parking lots. It reminds me of the there were modular car car ideas out there, and I looked and said, yeah, that's not going to fly because most people will just have one layout and that's it. You know, you just something about a modular ship that comes to mind in Star Wars, the very ship, the the probably the most iconic, one of the most iconic starships ever, the Millennium Falcon, the YT thirteen hundred Corellian freighter was known as being incredibly adaptable. No two YT-1300s were alike 
because you could switch up, yeah, and the YT-2400 that we have in, in the Star Wars campaign I'm running every other Thursday night. No, I, I always got the thirteen hundred and the twenty four hundred mixed up. I would it's Well the twenty four hundred has the the the, the, right the, there, okay? the cockpit that sticks out way more out front. Well like if this is the body of the ship, the cockpit would be like out here. Yeah. But yeah, those know. ships were very modular and it got to be after a while. Yeah, you had your stock you had base the, model. You had the base model that's there, but all these other things where there were wild variation in on that theme yeah that that was the one you were talking about modular ships i was trying to i'm racking my brain on the page i'm going why is this concept so familiar and smack the forehead and it's like the yt-1300 Right. And see, and that's also why there's such good smuggling vessels, because since everybody builds their Millennium, their, their version of Millennium Falcon differently, when the Imperials come on board, they don't just say, well, you know, the, the, the secret compartments have got to be right over here because that's the way the ship's laid out. And there's no, that's the only place there's space enough to do that. Instead, it's like every different, every one is a different configuration. So now they got to go and bring in the scanners and slowly scan the ship to be able to find those compartments. Oh, and I do love that. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Pixie. Even if you're dealing with the same ship, those compartments may not be in the same place yeah. the next time. Yeah, yeah, they can switch them around each and every time. Yeah. Yes, that makes it even more fun. Okay, Bruce, I found that thing about a picket ship that I mentioned earlier. Sure. Ronin Arts is the people who put it out, and this ship is only like a hundred and five feet long, so it's made to be part of a larger fleet that, okay, we have the Armada in this system. Yeah, we need you to go to, you know, the next system and scout it out. And in this ship, all you have is the cockpit, the data center, the communications and tech center, storage, and engineering. That's it. You've got minimal weapons on it. It's more just like light sensor. It's a piloted sensor probe that may hold... Let's see, the crew, eight. But yeah, something like that that you had mentioned earlier, where you go in, it's a very specific job, you do what you got to do, and you head back to base. That was what I was trying to remember, and I had to dig through my voluminous amount of PDFs to find this particular one. So yeah. and, and a little bit of trivia that goes back to the Millennium Falcon, the White Teeth 1300. Uh, it is canon that the notch in front, the the notch, you know, the two the two prongs, that was meant to hold cargo containers in front of the ship. That explains why the the cockpit was off to the side so they can see where they're going. And to play back to what Pixie said about you know configuring the inside, it is canon with the current Millennium Falcon. They added a kitchen, at least Leia added a kitchen to it. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, Leia would have added the kitchen. Well, the woman's talk. Yeah, yeah. I know, but it'd be much better to have stuff there that they could make rather than food packs again. Yeah, food packs again. Yeah. So yeah, so it, it, it is an example of a of a of a uh, of a uh, ship that's been updated uh, and reconfigured. 
you know, and and it is within the shell, but it's a variation of a modular because I'm also thinking the modular cutter from Traveler. It basically is a a front end and a rear end, and you put whatever you want to in the middle. You know, it could be another ship. It could be another ship. It could be cargo. It could be living quarters. It could be whatever. Uh, the that does that. According to your um, atomic rocket page. That's that. That's the standard configuration for all vessels. You've got your propulsion on one end. You've got your cargo in the middle, and you've got your command area in the top. Yep. Oh yeah, and it, you'll see a nice long discussion in there uh, that I participated in, talking about you know all the issues with modular ships. I mean, one of the issues with modular ship is the uh, the ship of Perseus or the old. This is my grandfather's axe. Grandfather replaced the handle. Dad replaced the head. This is my grandfather's axe. Oh, by the way, here's the handle, and here's the head. Put them back together. This is also my grandfather's axe. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's the paradox. What is, you know, what is the axe? Uh, what is my grand... Well, it led to the argument, okay, what is the, what is the ship when I mean, you have a ship that can be literally built from whatever? And that's what we came up with. You basically have a transponder or some component that never changes from ship from design to design. The registry doesn't change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You, you you got a VIN box. It costs you a half a million dollars to buy, but yeah, there you go. And you know, and it's good for ten years, and you have to come back where you bought it and get it renewed, uh, but for a much lower price. But it's the thing that the insurance companies and the banks want you to have, so they can. That's what you get loans on. That you get insurance on, because that that is the ship. <laughs> well, what you get in, what you get insurance on is your reputation. Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> Some players would never get insurance. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. No, yeah, uh, but, nor loans. Yeah, but yeah, <laughs> modu- yeah, and modularity can really vary. I mean, you can go from build a ship to we have a set crew compartment, a set propulsion unit, everything else in between is optional, you know, things like that. So you, you have different levels of modularity. Right. And, and, and of course, if you're doing this kind of thing, then you can build, um, let's say improvements or expansion into the ship in that regard, because, you know, if, if there isn't a spine that you're attaching to, they literally just attach to each other, then, you you start off with a small uh, you know uh, cargo compartment because that's all the the area you can afford to fill with cargo and uh, uh, and then as you become more prosperous you can buy one that's five times that size and so now your ship instead of only being a hundred feet long it's now. 200, 300 feet long because the the, the cargo compartment is much, much bigger because you've been able you, – you're carrying more cargo and you you can afford a bigger cargo compartment. Yeah, and in FTL, cargo's shipped in 10 by 10 by 10 containers. So, yeah, it's more or less uh, – that you can do that. Though I tend – I uh, pers- this is a personal thing. I like to actually having the cargo outside – on the on the spine itself, because well, it makes it easier to take it off and unload much faster than trying to run it through some sort of mechanism. You just reach out with your arms and grab and pull it off. Uh, just my preference, because because uh, I live in a seaport and I get to see ships being unloaded all the time. I prefer having my cargo on the outside. It can be just as airtight as if it if it was in the ship. You know, uh, it does also allow you to to solve the one problem with most ships. 
most purpose-built ships have have passenger space. That's in many cases wasted space. It's 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 basically life support being used to keep those cabins warm enough so they don't freeze and burst pipes. You know, there and there, it's mass. It's just you have to haul it around. If there's no one in there, it's not paying for itself. So in this case, you have passenger containers. You know, they're twenty foot, forty foot, whatever. They hook onto the ship, they plug into the power, and they they have their own life support and they take care of everything themselves. And people can either rent one or they own, they or if you're really rich, you can own one and travel around. Yeah, that actually exists on modern cargo ships as well. The you, most of these bigger cargo container type ships actually have a number of suites that they will rent out to people as passengers. Uh, and uh, the they get fed by the same chef who feeds the crew and everybody else. And it's a low, a very it's a, it's basically a low rent cruise because you know you're on a ship, you are traveling across the ocean. You get those nice mornings and stuff, and it does have a common area for entertainment. You usually share multiple. There's multiple cabins, so you get to meet your cabin mates. Uh, Heinlein wrote a, an entire a book about traveling around the world like that. And when you hit the international dateline, you'll get to be humiliated like everyone else who first crosses it. You know, <laughs> it's a tradition. If you've never crossed it before, you get to be humiliated at the at the international dateline crossing. Also, the equator. So if you do both at the same time, then you yeah, I don't know what it'd be like crossing both the equator and the international dateline at the same time. What they would do to you at that point. <laughs> uh, but it's a naval tradition. I was watching. Um, it was Michael Palin. He was crossing the ocean on a cargo vessel. They hit the they hit the international dateline, and they had this big ceremony for everyone who's who's first time over the dateline. You know, it's something that they all do. Uh, I'm not sure if cruise proper cruise ships do that, but I don't know many many proper cruise ships that cruise the Pacific uh, across the Pacific. I do they know up and down, but not across. I don't think that actually is a thing these days. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, you know, they, they, it just depends on where they're heading to. I mean, there's, I'm sure there's a, um, I don't know where they go. I don't know the, the, the best way of doing things, but, you know, there's going to be ones from LA to Australia, for example. That would be, that would be doing the Southern Pacific, right? Yeah. And there, I, I take that back. There are cruise ships that go to Hawaii from Los Angeles. Certainly they do that. Yeah. 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 So they go from Hawaii, they go from San Francisco. They go from uh, probably up, probably up in your area. Well, yeah, I mean, San, L.A. and San Diego are so close together. Whatever, you know? yeah. No, the ones here, in, the ones here in the Seattle area are run by Alaskan cruise lines. They tend to go up to Alaska, uh, so yeah, they go up the Inside Passage. Uh, but yeah, that is something. Uh, yeah, hey, that's the type we didn't talk about. There, there are you know ships that aren't county ships. They're not cargo ships. They're, well, passenger ships, basically airline, the equivalent of airlines in space. There has, obviously, has to be something like that, you know, because you have a lot of, tra- lot of traffic between all the main, main worlds, Fonks Cheer, Earth, you know, Earth, places like uh, Formal Hut. You have this traffic. People are just going there. They're not, they're not going to live there. They're just going there for business because, well, light, you know, light speed sucks when it comes to terms of communication. And you want to talk to the person face to face, and not you know through various electronic messages you send you know you send on a on a ship. So yeah, there's got to be uh, ships whose entire purpose in life is not to, is to haul a little bit of cargo and passengers. 
And none of them in cryo sleep. They're all going to be a wide awake, and it's basically it's um at the very worst a month month or two month travel on a cruise ship. Uh, at best, it's a couple of days. It, it sounds like something to be done more of an inner system kind of thing. Yeah, that too. You know, because you don't want to spend a couple months on a in a small vessel as a passenger. You know, is it's that's. That, that that I mean, if it, if it's a small vessel, a larger vessel, going okay. on a space cruise to Ganymede, yeah, yeah. Well, well, like a space cruise, like a cruise ship is basically like a huge hotel that happens to be a spaceship. A good example of that would be the Fifth Element, where they had that one ship. Yeah, that they, the Floxton, the Floxton Paradise. Right, and yeah. and it's 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 a gorgeous thing, you know, and, and having been on cruises. Believe me, the, they're they're very much like hotels. You know, you're, it's, like, it's like going to a floating resort hotel. You know, Bruce, I just realized there is one ship type, I'm not, and, you, and you can even have players who want to play it. I mean, definitely you can get in Traveler. Um, and that is the yacht. It is a spaceship built for a per, for one person and one person only and his crew. Well, that, that's that's kind of like the, that's kind of like the uh, hardened your your small hardened or the, ship. the one that falls under the A the A and B, you know, where it's self contained. I said contained, but it's contained. So it's basically a small vessel that just travels around. It's not. It's it's only for a very small group. Yeah. Oh dear God! It's the USS Space Minnow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's going on a three-year cruise. Oh no. Um. <laughs> Well, it, it it could be Quark, <laughs> the inter the intergalactic garbage scow. Oh God, the old Richard Benjamin series. Yeah, uh-huh. I remember that. Now you laugh, but you know the both the Russians and I think uh, the Chinese are trying to develop, and some one German company are trying to develop ways to actually well collect space garbage around in Earth orbit. So, but that's going to be mostly automated. Right, but not but not just that. I mean, if you actually had uh, people embracing the idea that they can't poison their environments, you might very well have colonies that had a certain amount of waste that they didn't really have any way of getting rid of, and so it would be this this their job to go in and, and take this stuff and collect it. Either they would fire it into orbit, or they'd come down and take it and bring it back and go on until they finally, you know took the, the final mass of it and tossed it into a sun or took it someplace where somebody actually wanted that kind of material because almost all poisons and things like that are actually valuable um, materials. They're just hard to work with. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine there's a level of recycling going on that makes what we do right now, re, you know, uh, look like, you know, we're not even trying. Well, we aren't really. But yeah, I imagine, you know, the, I, I've, I've written a few stories like, you know, that all the old um, uh, landfills are being mined for the plastics because, you know, oil, that thing that used to exist 400 years ago, that's all plastic. And that's a source of petrochemicals, and we're money. We're making money off the off what they threw away four hundred years ago, you know. So all the old, you know, all the old landfills are being mined for their plastics and rare metals and so forth. Because you know what? It's easier to get them than get them from space sometimes. And I imagine a, a lot. I imagine this waste collection would be for really specific operations 
like a, a factory that's operating a basically a, a, a space based factory working on a asteroid. They really don't have a need to have a, have agriculture on it because it's only going to be there for five years. But they're producing waste, and that waste has got to go someplace, and it's all good recyclable stuff. So, yeah, I can see people showing up and saying, we'll buy your waste. We'll buy your garbage. We'll buy your sewage. And we'll sell it, and we'll sell it for a profit on some on some place they will want the sewage, and we'll sell the, the waste products, your other waste products, to people who recycle it and give us money. So that is a, vi- that is a viable uh, occupation. Whether or not it be a fun occupation for the players, eh. You know, it's up, it's up to the GM. You know, if you want to play Quark, he got into a lot of adventures, even being a garbage man. <laughs> uh, but I do like the idea of a space, of a space yacht. You know, you, be, you got the equivalent of Elon Musk or uh, Bill Gates flying around and having adventures. That's, you know, that sort of harkens back to Traveler where you have, you know, you have Prince Philip and, and all the retired generals from various armies flying around with him <laughs> and having adventures. Uh, uh, but yeah, that, but I imagine a yacht would be a different BC altogether because it would probably be a little bit bigger. Because you know, it's perfectly fine for a, a small ship like Nudge to have cabins the size of large closets. It's not fine for someone like Bill Gates or Elon Musk to have a cabin the size of a large closet. He wants a cabin like the size of a small apartment. Yeah, that was my point. Yeah, yeah, they'd be built. They definitely would be built differently. Um, actually, it was uh, there was a um one of the event- I wrote a small little adventure for another game, and they were it used a modular ship. Uh, and one of the things was that there was a they were passenger cabins there, and there also was a private passenger cabin added to the ship. It belonged to basically he had a whole deck to himself, you know, and everyone else was sharing a deck. He wasn't. This was his deck. You know, and he had the whole deck to himself. So you can see things like that, harking back to uh, modular design. Um, oh, let's see. Anything else we have in that list? Or... Well, sure. Let's see. Oh, you're also talking about the small contingent, the Vipers from Ballastar. Now, this is if there's one topic that gets people's blood boiling, it's space fighters. You'll find people on both sides of that. One group saying space fighters. Yeah, it's a great way to suicide people. Because they ain't coming back unless you have magic tech running their ships because they're just way too small. And unlike airplanes, which can, which can fly in a medium and have their oxidizer come from the air, space fighters are woefully – the only way they can work is that they're using zero energy pods to generate energy and fly around because there's no way they can work. And they can't carry enough. Unlike an unlike a, a air, aircraft, they can carry heavy weapons. Most space fighters won't have the power supply to have really big lasers, and they can only if they carry a missile big enough to take out a ship, just fire the missile at the ship instead of firing the fight, taking the fighter. You know things like that. So you have arguments on both sides. And having said that, we have the Zonky Raider from FTL twenty four eight. But I'm looking at it, and the Zonky Raider really is designed for raids on planets. Basically, it's what drops from the sky and flies down and starts attacking. It's, it's what I call a aerospace fighter. That's a viable alternative. It isn't meant for ship-to-ship combat because ships were just blown out of the sky. It's meant for ship-to-surface combat. It flies down and basically operates as a uh, as an air support for whatever troops you have on the ground. 
that's a viable concept in terms of uh, ships. It ain't going to go very far. If, if, a, if, a, if a zonky uh, mothership starts laying looser chickens uh, in deep space, they're all on suicide missions at that point. You know, they're aiming to, they're not even probably going to shoot you. They're going to ram you as fast as they can because they'll do more damage. <laughs> I, mer- I actually was, I remember for traveling, I once tried to design a, a, a warp, no, a hyper jump capable space fighter. It was ugly because it didn't, because ha- the tank engine required, which made it huge. It was all tank and just a little, little just a little spot in the front where you sat and lived. Depends an awful lot on how much power is available. See, uh, one of the problems I had with uh, that uh, the the atomic uh, uh, rocket page was is that, and especially the one you talk about, every gram being important. That's only that only happens if you don't have a very rich power source. If you have, you know, you have the kind of power sources that they have in the Enterprise or other types of things where literally they don't really have a problem with power. They have a problem with control. You know, there's, 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 you know, they'll, they're not going to run out of fuel anytime soon. It's just a matter of, you know, design. I mean, how fast can they go? How, fa- you know, how far ahead can the sensors see to make sure that they're not going to run into something? Uh, does the power plant itself exert stress on the ship so you you know you, the point is that you always have more energy than you actually need so these questions you know which are you know, right now just don't happen you know it, it ultimately if you do anything with it it comes down to well you you took you, you, know, you took an arrow to the knee in essence okay and now your your ship isn't working or it costs you x amount of dollars if you go really, really fast versus really really slow so you know how fast can you afford to go? The, the, these considerations go away when you deal with uh, either ships with really with massive delta V, like the Orion uh, drive spacecraft, or torch ships. And FTL uses torch ships. So from one case, so a torch ship is basically any ship that has, well, basically unreasonable amount of power, and that's something that we have in FTL. Most these ships have an unreasonable amount of power. So yeah. FTL ships fall into the torch ship category. Uh, I mean, literally, most of these ships don't even cost anything for fuel. They they go and they dip into a gas giant and they suck up hydrogen, distill out the hydrogen, throw away the rest. They're back in business for for a, another long leg of their trip. Uh, most of these ships are not very aerodynamic. Uh, I'm not sure which. I think you I think you're, you're thinking of Traveler, where the far traders and the uh, scout ships would do that. They would dive in. Either the ship itself is aerodynamic, okay, or they've got a harvesting vessel that is aerodynamic enough to go in and do the same job, okay. Or or they or they mine an asteroid that's covered with ice. I mean, there's ways. the The point is, is that you know, uh, in a lot of cases, the only real thing that they need is hydrogen to run the fusion drive, and they get that wherever they can find hydrogen, which is plentiful in almost any system. Yep, and of course, if you can get better stuff like deuteronium, or if you can get uh, helium three, that's even better. Uh, you get more. You get more bang. Well, let's see with deuterium, you get the best bang for your buck. Uh, with with a little bit of radiation, with helium three, not such a big bang for the buck, but no radiation, hardly any radiation whatsoever. So yeah, there's different different things. And then there's antimatter, which is all radiation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, but it's still good. Yeah, actually, looking at uh, almost 
<laughs> reading up on antimatter and, and the antimatter byproducts, that's only really true for for electron to positron annihilations. If it's proton to antiproton annihilations, you get a whole bunch of different decay products and not a whole lot of gamma radiation. So it really depends what you what you're throwing together and seeing what blows up. Uh, so, but yeah, for the most part, yeah, it's it, antimatter gives you. I would use antimatter as a as a fusion starter. I would use it to run the uh, run a fusion process, which would give me even more energy, and just a little bit of antimatter just to give me enough heat and compression to really squeeze that hydrogen and give me a, a good burn. Because with, with antimatter, I can actually burn at a low cost, regular regular you know good old fashioned straight H, not deuteronium, not tritium normal hydrogen, which normally has a really high emission point. But if I can use any matter to really put the squeeze on it, I'll do that. And I can actually burn normal hydrogen at that point, really efficiently and really cheaply. So there's various things you can do. Uh, and that's actually what they did on the Venture Star from Avatar. It used a uh, hydrogen, it used any matter induced fusion to, to travel. Uh, well, actually, it was it was multi it was multi fuel. Basically, for the f- trip from Earth, they used frigging laser beams to take it up to about half the speed of light, and then it turned around and then it used its own drives to break all the way to, to Alpha Centauri uh, at that point. So, and, and of course, they were hoping when they got there, there would be enough antimatter at the at at Alpha Centauri for them to do the exact reverse, burn height, burn you know, burn any matter and fusion and get up to half a speed of light, turn over, and then the freaking laser beams turn on and slow them down at that point when they get to Earth. So yeah, it's 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 interesting. It's actually it, that is actually one of the hardest science fiction hardest science fiction movie ships ever made because well, James Cameron wanted a real spaceship, real starship that didn't go faster in light, and he got one. It is one that, you know, and and I surprised people say, and it was the first one in many years. You know, you know what the the hardest science fiction ship was before the Venture Star was? It wasn't the Discovery. Discovery is actually kind of soft because Kubrick really fudged it a lot. The hardest ship was the Luna from Destination Moon. Because that also had a person riding roughshod on their riders. That was Robert A. Heinlein. He wanted a viable... Uh, you know, working spaceship, and he got it with the Luna. It was actually one of the one of the harder fifty start you know spaceships. So yeah, it was like what fifty no seventy years, no sixty years sixty years between really hard spaceships. In between, everything's kind of soft, you know. But anyway, that's just just me just ranting. But yeah, actually, the, the Venture Star is a great example of a government funded ship. I, I would mention the, in the early years of FTL, most of the ships are going to basically governments can build them because they're going to cost in the billions, if not tens of billions of dollars. No one really is going to be able to afford to build. Well, actually, this, there are no governments in the early ship in the early years. It's corporations. Well, yeah. well that's because they don't have a mature space-faring civilization. They're basically inventing the things. It's always expensive when you're inventing something. And I imagine, and and for every starship you see out there, you're going to see dozens or even hundreds more of what we, what's colloquially called a system ship. It doesn't go faster than light. It just goes between planets and so forth. And like 
I would imagine Earth would be just rich with them. There would be the cyclers from Mars to Earth. There would be the cyclers from Jupiter to Earth with, with tanked up with all the helium-3 they can carry. You'll have cyclers out to the various asteroid colonies and out to the, to tr- the Jupiter's Trojan Point asteroid collections. You'd have cyclers from, from Earth to Moon. You know, this ships that go back and forth, and most of them are going to be robotic. They, they, they basically just, they, there's absolutely no need for them to have a crew on board. They're, they're flying very set orbits, very set paths. The stuff from Jupiter is going on the lowest delta V, uh, orbit, uh, delta V, uh, orbits they can to save on fuel because, well, it takes fuel to move fuel. Uh, so you don't want to, you, you don't want to burn up half, half your re, half your mining stuff from, from Jupiter to get back home. So, but, but yeah, so there's, there'll be a lot of traffic. I imagine out in a nice dark place on Earth, you just look up and the sky's alive with moving lights all over the place of things going back and forth. There might be a, a lot of those types of vessels going between the larger moons of Jupiter, for example. That's true, too. Yeah. And Saturn. Sat- Actually, I would imagine Saturn would have several hotels, <laughs> you know, just to see Saturn. You know, and go and go and and oh, that's right. We're doing an excursion. You get you get the ski you get the ski methane ice and and Titan, you know, and stuff like that. Sure. Unless of course Titan is 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 irritated because they find life on it. Then no one's going to Titan unless you're a scientist. Yeah, we'll we'll see we'll see, John. <laughs> I haven't I haven't seen the presence of life deterring any. Uh, People, any land developers in any time in our history. No, and places like Formula would also be because Formula's just full of it's a target-rich environment for asteroids and a lot of, and a lot of stuff that has water in it. Uh, a lot of commentary material out there around the Formula. So yeah, Formula would be another place where you just see system ships, mining ships everywhere. They're grabbing ice, bringing it back so it can be broken down, and all the uh, you know. Basically, looking for deuteronium, looking for tritium, looking for actually not looking for tritium. Tritium, you have to you have to make tritium because it's such a short lifespan. But you're making deuteronium. You're looking for helium three, and because Formhut is a is a nexus point in, in game for ships coming in for trade. So it's a trade hub. It's another place where you'll see a lot of ships. Uh, we don't we don't talk about trade routes. I mean, there would be some definite trade routes. So between all the home worlds for every alien race, I imagine there'd be some very lots of traffic between them because every one of those worlds has something unique to that world that can be sold someplace else. And we're, and we're probably talking, this is where the big ships, the ones that can carry like, you know, tens of thousands of containers travel. So this is something, so these are places that I don't know if you can compete as a, uh, as a independent hauler in those situations. And the ship you're on is not owned by you. It's owned by a corporation. You know, any ship that can carry 10,000 or 20,000 cargo containers is not going to be owned by a player character unless he's a million, unless he's a billionaire at this point. So, but then again, I don't know. Could you, could you, here's a question. Let me throw out. If you say the players say, we want to, we want to be on the equivalent of one of these Panamax cargo ships, you know, what kind of game can you give us? What kind of game could we give them if, they, if that's what the players wanted to play? You know, they're on a corporate-owned ship. You know, 
that best they'll spend a week or two in system at, at port. What kind of, what kind of games could we give them to play at that point? What kind of troubles could they have? You know, beside the normal. Okay, we're being chased by the Port Authority again, off, off because you guys. Uh. Well, you've got pirates trying to take their cargo. You've got them being, you know, uh, having a rush job to get something somewhere, and having to deal with uh, possible breakdowns, possible stress. Uh, you know, the the whole issue. I, I don't think you have to worry too much about you know the speed up, slow down part of it. But uh, there's that. Uh, there's po- and possibly there's sabotage because if they're trying to get someone real fast, maybe somebody doesn't want them to get there real fast. Yeah, so, corporate espionage type stuff. So yeah. you could have some people on the ship trying to sabotage it. Oh, uh, be a case where the GM says, "Okay, roll your skill." You take your hand away and say, "You rolled double zero for the phase jump. You just had a miss jump." <laughs> well, yeah, that can always happen. Sure. Um, or uh, you, uh, you're working for the corporation, uh, you get to where you're supposed to drop off your cargo, and you find out that your cargo is worth a tenth of what it was supposed to be worth because of something was discovered on the planet or somebody else showed up with all the, uh, you know, basically sold, sold your people ahead of you, and so now they don't want to buy your product anymore. Now what do you do? Oh, yeah, or when I actually came up with for a for a, a, a short story, uh, the cargo you're carrying, the company you're you're delivering it to went out of business about a week ago. Oh, <laughs> and you're wondering because you're hearing the traffic saying, "Yeah, they're just putting stuff into the cargo containers and sticking on ships to just to ship it." You're going, "What are we carrying?" I thought we were carrying blah, blah, blah. Are we actually carrying blah, blah, blah? Or are we carrying whatever they can scrape off the ground and put into a cargo container? Okay, I'm missing something. Why would they do that? They're trying to stay afloat by, by, by basically moving cargo. And, and it's called panic. They're trying to ship. Is, we need to ship. We need to show that we're still alive so we can get that loan to stay afloat. And it didn't work. Oh, okay. So they're they're basically sh- false shipping because they want to look like they're busy. Yeah, they're, they're still viable. Ah, okay. And, and then they went out of business. Now you and now of course now you and of course their assets are now bought up by the largest trade house in Formal Hut. People who basically treat guys like you like oh um pardon me for stepping on you and rubbing my and squishing you to the ground. So, you know, now you got to deal with, uh, in this case, it was Creek Exports Imports, the biggest trade house on Formal Hut. Uh, Archer Creek is not a billionaire, not a hundred billionaire. He's one of the few rare trillionaires. He's rich. He's rich. He's richer than Creases. And he basically just bought the assets of the company you were shipping cargo to. And now you have to deal with him. And maybe maybe he'll give you a tenth of what that cargo should be worth, even if it is the real stuff. Or maybe he'll be honest and you know deal with you fairly. You got you got to work with it. And then of course you get contacted by ICL saying, um, "You can't deliver that cargo. We think there's contraband on board." And then the fun ensues at that point as you're trying to figure out. At which point you say, "What cargo? Yeah, we've already <laughs> delivered it." And you're trying to you're trying to find anybody to buy it before the ICO shows up. 
let's back let's backdate those sales sales orders. Oh yeah, but hope yeah, and, and and that actually brings up something that I have to apologize for. To every person who's ever bought a copy of FDL twenty four eight and tried to use the trade rules in them, I apologize. I wrote them. They don't work. Um, the, the part of the re- reason is is that trade is difficult. Trade, I mean, simulating trade between worlds, it's very difficult. And if you don't do it right, you end up people becoming millionaires overnight because you screwed up with with the way the numbers work. And Traveler has the same problem. You find the golden triangle in in, tra- in Traveler, you become millionaires. Buying and selling stuff back and forth, unless the GM decides to fudge the rules and do something completely different. Uh, and the thing is, my rules, my rules I came up with for the this is for the uh, the most current edition FTL are broken. They're not as broken as the original trade rules were in FTL. Uh, <laughs> but it's a problem that only one person I saw actually ever addressed. It was Greg Constant Constant uh, Constant Yankee or Constant. He. Um, I can't pronounce his name. He did many games. He did a lot of games for, he's a game designer, does a lot of board games. He did one of the last games for metagaming called Star Trader. This is back in 70, no, 82, 83. It was the first game I ever saw that required you to know how to do double ledger bookkeeping. That's how complex it was. <laughs> but from people who played it, who actually, when spreadsheets finally came out and they were able to put it into the spreadsheet, he said, well, you make money, but not that much. And all that was part of my goal was try to come up with a system where, yeah, you're that ragtag free, you know, free trader trying to make a buck. And I wanted a system where, yeah, you're going to have to make decisions. You got to decide how much you can sell your cargo for and maybe make a buck, make enough profit to pay, you know, pay your docking fees for the next week or so. Unfortunately, I, after after playtesting it and running with other people, it's broken majorly. <clears throat> and it's the problem with most, most science fiction games where they have trade rules, they're broken majorly. But the only games I know of that don't actually aren't very broken is like Diaspora, where it doesn't even bother. You don't even worry what you're carrying. You're carrying speculative cargo. You roll, make a roll. You roll good. You've made your nut and you've paid your bills. And that's it. We're not worried about you making a mint. We're just worried about you making enough to pay your bills. And the rules are written that way. And that's about the only way I can see of doing it. If you don't want your players to be like, if you want your players to be like the crew of the Serenity, then just have them make a couple of rolls to see if they make, if they, uh, make a good sale and they make, and they made enough to make, to make their nut, to, to pay the bills and maybe have a little bit left over to buy some strawberries or something else. You know, just keep them poor. Don't let them get rich. You know, because if they get rich, then they can they can buy things you wish they never bought. <laughs> anyway, that's my mea culpa. Okay. All right. All right. Well, thanks everybody for playing along with us. Hopefully, you got some ideas about different kinds of of campaigns that uh, you can do with different kinds of vessels. Uh, and obviously, uh, and, and unless you get too small, a lot of these things can play, you know, double duty in di- different kinds of roles. Uh, but uh, it's, you know, it comes down to what kind of a ship, what kind of a ship experience are you looking for in your science fiction game? 
when you think about going out there into space and doing something, what is it you think about doing and what kind of a ship do you need to do that? You know, and is that going to be good enough for the short term, it, but also good enough for the long term? Or are you going to end up with a whole string of purpose built ships where you actually have to go and sell the ship you're on and go to the next one and go to the next one? Or it be granted to you if you're like in a more of a military campaign where they said, OK, you know, we're getting you out of the PT cruiser. I'm going to put you on the uh, on the command deck of a destroyer and all the way up to the aircraft carrier and. You know, and then we, uh, and then all of a sudden it turns into the Yamato and we go into deep space. So, you know, what kind of game are you looking for when you play a space game? And let us know how we can create, uh, help create that game for you because we're all game designers here and we'd like to, uh, and we're going to be working on new products in the future. So your input will be helpful. So we'll have more for this for you next week. But until then, This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at TriTech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav from the Travcast. Listen to me Tuesday nights, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern on listen.dementiaradio.org colon 8027.